Spider-Man, I'm going to do you the biggest favor of your life. I'll give you a chance to surrender before they destroy you. This is me and my friend Pete, the podcast that explores all things THE Amazing Spider-Man. I'm your host, the mighty monologuing motormouth himself. They call me Gerald. If this is your first time with us, welcome. If it isn't, welcome, 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 welcome back. This week, we're running through THE Amazing Spider-Man number 22, presenting the clown and his masters of menace. If you haven't already, please consider becoming a patron over at patreon.com HSPP in the Key Keeper or High Council tiers, where you gain access every week to a bonus episode of me and my friend Pete, covering a comic book pull from High Society's extensive vault collection, chosen by you, the listeners. If you sign up before our season one finale, that's episode number 25, you receive a High Society lapel pin. You know fashion is important here on me and my friend Pete, and we want to be a part of yours. This week's bonus episode, we stay in the mighty Marvel House of Ideas for 1985, number one, Haunted. Young Toby's got a problem. The old house up the road has new tenants and they look vaguely similar. In fact, they look exactly like some of the villains from his Marvel Comics collection. But that's ridiculous. Comic books aren't real, so surely Doctor Doom, the Mole Man, and the Vulture aren't either. Right? That's later. Right now? We've got rebranding on a villainous scale as the circus of crime put democracy in action. We've got a new leader. We've got a new name. We've got new villainous ambitions that begin with an art heist pulled off with one part showmanship, one part's muscle, all parts JJ down. And we've got me. We've got you. We've got no further ado. We've got the amazing Spider-Man number 22. Presenting the clown and his masters of menace. Thomas Crown, eat your heart out. In other titles this month, Spidey makes the briefest of appearances. Literally one panel. Literally one arm. In Fantastic Four number 36 in March of 1965. This is a great comic that sees Reed Richards and Susan Storm announcing their engagement to the world and being attacked by the first appearance of the villainous Frightful Four. Spidey's right arm appears briefly during Sue and Reed's engagement party through a window to snag a piece of cake as he thinks, I'm sure they would have invited me if they knew where to find me, so I'll just help myself to a piece of cake. Uh Uh-oh, I'd better leave. There's some kind of shit coming. That's it. All we get is an arm. The right arm, if you're wondering. But it is a gorgeous story from words to art. Stan Lee, Jack Kirby, Sheik Stone, Artie Simek, working. And I'm sure Spidey swung off from their story and right into his own. So let's get into it. This one was written by Smiling Stan Lee. Illustrated by Swingin' Steve Ditko. With letters by Art, it's in the name Simek. Beneath Art's name on this one, we get a little cheek. We let Artie do this occasionally. It's cheaper than giving him a raise. <laughs> so instead of giving Artie a raise... They gave Artie more work back then. He was constantly doing the letters on the Fantastic Four, but if he needed a little cash, he could pick up the Amazing Spider-Man. I don't hate it. I know what the hustle is. You gotta make the donuts. You can't do that on dimes. That's the rule, if I'm not mistaken. The cover. The cover of this one has the Amazing Spider-Man written in Spidey New Roman, shade white, with Spidey costume red beneath his name on top of spiderwebs in a dark blue negative space. That dark blue gets brighter as it descends the page into a warehouse where a large shadow is looming on the wall. The shadow is of a lithe figure, its right arm up above its head, its left stretched out at its side. Beneath this shadow, we have a group of people who may be familiar if you were here for The Amazing Spider-Man number 16, Duel with Daredevil. That's episode 16 here on Me and My Friend Pete, Spiance and the Fleabag, when Spidey went up against the Ringmaster and his Circus of Crime. The Circus of Crime are dominating stage right of this cover, We have a flying Gambano, Luigi, or is that Ernesto? In blue full body suits with a light brown belt and boots, bookending a woman in a purple bodysuit with black frills on her thighs and shoulders, pink sleeves, and sheer leggings matching her alabaster skin and pink slippers. 
She's got brown hair draped over her left shoulders and large white earrings. She is a stunning woman, to be sure. Next to her is the man Cannonball in his silver bullet helmet and armored shoulders, gauntlets, a silver belt, and boots. And standing in front of the other Gambano, Ernesto, or is that Luigi? Is the clown who was riding into the fight with Spidey and ASM number 16 on a unicycle. This clown's got a pair of big brass ones in heart and style. He's got a red and orange clown collar, a yellow-orange vest with matching yellow-orange pants that have stripes running horizontally along the length of the pant legs, brown shoes, and green socks with a green shirt and black polka dots all over it. When I say you gotta commit to your costume, this is what I'm talking about. He's got brown hair with the Reed Richards working on the side, and we can't see his makeup, but I'm sure he's covered in clown paint. And of course, he's got the large white clown gloves. And every one of them is staring down at the center of the page as the sign of the spider shines its perfect crimson circle onto the floor of the warehouse. Every face we can see has a look of surprise or fear on it. And beneath the greatest logo in the sport of comics, we get new frills, new villains, new surprises, Spidey battles, the Clown and his Masters of Menace. So the Circus of Crime has a new name. Let's get into it. Page one opens to the sign of the spider next to the title of this issue. Presenting the Clown and his Masters of Menace. And presenting is written with six E's. They really want to put this on display. Beneath this title, we've got Spidey on the bottom of the page, suited, booted, his back to us, his arms wide and the shading doing all the work. We can tell he's a little surprised just from the shadowing. It is gorgeous inking. Why Spidey surprised? Stage right to stage left standing behind a large circle on the floor, we have the clown and his masters of menace beneath a blue theater curtain pulled wide with arrows above their heads introducing all of them. The crafty clown in a yellow vest and frilly collar, an orange polka dot shirt with white cuffs, brown pants with horizontal stripes and orange clown shoes because, of course, you gotta commit. He's got a large yellow shepherd staff in his left hand and is riding his battle unicycle. He had hair on the cover, but that was just the front. In here, he's bald, and I learned a fun fact about his makeup. He has exaggerated arches for his eyebrows, black cat eye eyeliner, black makeup on his nose, pastel pink face paint covering every inch of his face except for the white paint around his lips and a large frown. What I learned? That this type of makeup style is called an August Clown. And according to Clownopedia, the August Clown is number two in rank, which makes sense as you'll see when we get into the story. August Clowns gained the name August because quote, the number one skill of the August Clown is clumsiness. August comes from Berlin slang for idiot. And that early circus audience had no idea when they called out August to that first clumsy performer of the legacy their insults would leave. Beside the crafty clown are the great Gambanos. They're in lavender full body suits with black balaclavas on their heads and light blue forearm bands and boots. They're twins and Ernesto is on the shoulders of Luigi. Or is that Luigi on the shoulders of Ernesto? With his fist clenched and they're both smirking at Spidey. Not worried at all. Beside them, in exactly the same brown and silver costume with his bullet head helmet, fist clenched and a contrapposto stance from the last time he showed up, the man called Cannonball. Next to him, in an even more exaggerated contrapposto stance, her right hand behind her right hip, her left in front of her left hip is Princess Python. She's got auburn hair and curls draped over her left shoulder. She's wearing a green cat suit with lime green sleeves and leggings that resemble the scales of her namesake. She is a stunning woman. And I try not to comment on people's appearances too much, but there is a reason why I have pointed this out twice. But wait! There's more! Standing stage left a foot in front of Spidey near the border of the page is the most committed man in the supervillain costume game and he is surrounded by metaphorical salt. The Ringmaster. He's got his pink top hat with the Amadeus spiral at its center, his green tailcoat covered in large black stars, his pink pants tight around his thighs, his green boots covered in matching stars, a pink ascot, and white gloves. His thick eyebrows arched above his long face, his Fu Manchu mustache on extra pointy at the tips. He's glaring at Spidey with his arms folded. A salty, 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 lemon salt level expression on his face. The arrow above his head says, And take a good look at the ringmaster. He won't be around very long. 
Besides Spidey's thighs, we get another one of Lee's living legends, another dazzling Ditko delight. We turn the page. Page two opens with a caption box. In a sleazy hotel room, in a shabby hotel, some sneaky sinners are startled by the sight of a sparkling spider signal. Stand the man alliteration on best ever. And the sign of the spider lights up the floor of this sleazy hotel. We're bunched into a corner of the room to the left of a cracked mirror sitting on top of a bureau stage right is the ringmaster and his circus of crime. The great Gambano twins, the crafty clown, the man called Cannonball. The only person missing is Princess Python, and that may be for the best for her because whenever that sign hits the floor, we usually got action. They all stare at the sign, screaming the obvious. Look, a sudden beam of light through the window. It's the mark of Spider-Man. It's getting brighter. Before our hero, suited and booted, swings in through the sky blue curtains, feet first above an old school cast iron steam radiator, screaming, well, well, if it isn't the rocking ringmaster and his playful little partners. And ringmaster knows his rights. He says he and his gang have served their time, that they're free now. And Spidey's like, I know, but I know this ain't a tea party either. There's a reason you threw this get together. He lands and pointing at the ringmaster, tells the high-hatted hypnotist that he better not try and use Spidey as a means to his ends ever again. I just want to say, crime has to pay in the 616 universe at this time. We've got criminals robbing, stealing, killing in some instances, and they're always out in months. We're on issue 22. The Circus of Crime's first appearance in Amazing Spider-Man was number 16. They were given six months for a mass robbery attempt through a criminal organization with no probation. Madness! Back to, and the ringmaster plays tough saying he's not scared of the spider, but the flop sweat beating on his forehead determined that that was a lie. Spidey snatches the man's top hat from his head and turns up the intimidation. Then why are you shaking that way? You fumbling phony, I'll make you eat your hat to show I'm not kidding. Ringmaster folds like a beach chair immediately, screaming he believes the wall crawler, but Spidey's pulling a bit of misdirection. While all eyes are focused on him, pressing the ringmaster, he slides a spider tracer into the band of the ringmaster's top hat. He leaps onto the sill of the window. He set his piece. Now he's getting out of here. And the ringmaster shouts for Spidey to return his hat. Spidey thinks, gotcha. He tosses the hat back at the ringmaster. Now with Spidey tracer in the band. In a great panel where we get a detailed shot of the ringmaster's gloved hands open to catch it. On his way out, Spidey hits the circus of crime with the BJ Cosmos. Don't call me. I'll call you and leaps from the window on a left-handed web line, thinking that now that he's got the tracker in place, he'll be able to run down on the ringmaster anytime he wants. As the ringmaster watches him leave, his right hand on the brim of his hat, his left fist clenched in anger. Three opens to a long horizontal panel. We've got Cannonball with his arms folded in the foreground, stage right, scowling. Then the ringmaster in the background. Then Ernesto Gambano in an orange armchair, smiling. Or is that Luigi? The crafty clown in the foreground, one leg up on a table he's sitting on, his left arm propped on it, his face in its eternal sad frown. Directly behind him, stage left, puffing a cigarette, Luigi Gambano, or is that Ernesto? And in the door frame, killing the game with a red cocktail dress, large white Wilma Flintstone pearls on her neck, a pink sequin belt clenching her waist, matching the peach sequin cocktail hat on her head, also lined with white pearls, her auburn hair is high, bouncy and curly, and falls over her left shoulder, in her flawlessly manicured right hand, She's holding a theater-length cigarette holder. That is how you make an entrance. That is style, and you know we care about fashion here on Me and My Friend Pete. She wasn't in the circus of crime, so she's a new Spidey villain. She's got style flaring. This is Princess Python. The drama continues. The ringmaster says now that Spidey's gone, they need to get back to business as usual, that they should go to another state and get back to hypnotizing crowds and robbing them blind. That's not a bad plan. To our knowledge, they've only been stopped twice and have been doing it for much longer than those two moments of failure. But those two moments have left a sour taste in the mouths of the circus of crime. Cannonball says the ringmaster's had it. The clown says they've got two strikes and he's not striking out again. The clown may be referring to the three strike laws or habitual felon statute as it's known in New York, first widely used in 1994, that gave persistent felony offenders life in prison after their third felony offense. Though the law became a popularized penalty in the 90s, New York is one of the states with the oldest habitual felon statutes, having laws on the books since 1797. The debate rages to this day on whether these laws are effective or not. A 2007 study titled Reconsidering Incarceration, New Directions for Reducing Crime, 
conducted by the Vera Institute of Justice, found that if incarceration rates were raised by 10%, crime would decrease by 2%. Another study titled Effects of State-Level Policy Changes on Homicide and Non-Fatal Shootings of Law Enforcement Officers, published by BMJ Journals in 2015, showed that three strike laws have led to a 33% increase of fatal assaults on law enforcement officers. Why? Because offenders with two strikes, knowing that their next trip to prison will be a life sentence, refuse to be taken without a fight. That shootout scene in the town of Jeremy Renner's character Jim? Yeah, Jim had two strikes. Jim killed at least three police officers in that scene. That was just a movie. I just gave you real life numbers though. You needed a visual. Back to. So the clown's not trying to take any more chances with such public crimes. Ernesto's not either, or is that Luigi? Luigi says they need a new caper, or is that Ernesto? Reminder, they're still in a pretty lucrative business, but they must see the decline. Video didn't just kill the radio star, it may have killed the circus. And Princess Python, Southern Belle that she is, makes a bold statement. You're right, boys. If we stay with the ringmaster, we'll just wind up in jail again. Her eyes shining emerald green in a close-up in the next panel, she says she's leaving the circus of crime. She doesn't need this hassle. She's got her snake act to fall back on. The ringmaster, trying to hold it together, says keep the act. I can find a way to fit it into my next scheme. Python, blowing smoke from her cigarette into his face, says you're a cool hypnotist, but that doesn't mean you should be in charge. In the foreground, the clown chimes in. The princess is right. You're washed up, ringmaster. And in the background, the cannonball says ringmaster is a has-been. The perspective shifts, and the ringmaster is in the background now. He screams that the crew needs a leader, and Python says, you're right, we definitely do. Someone clever and crafty who can think on his feet that people will trust. And staring demurely at her nominee, she finishes with M dash M dash, the clown, who's in the foreground staring out of the corner of his eye with a smirk inside of his frown, juggling. The Gambanos and Cannonball co-sign immediately. In the final panel, as the ringmaster jerks his thumb towards himself screaming they can't do this to him because he's the guy who brought them together, Luigi replies, smirking, and you're the one who's gonna kiss us goodbye. You got your hat. Take it and blow. The ringmaster, more flop sweat racing from beneath his top hat, screams that he'll make them regret this. And it doesn't seem smart to threaten a violent gang when your only power is hypnosis. Four opens to the clown tossing his juggling balls at the ousted ringmaster, saying without that hypnosis to help, the guy is nothing. The juggling balls don't hurt the ringmaster at all, but Cannonball's head does. He slams it into the ringmaster's stomach, knocking the air from his lungs and sending him flying backwards, where ringmaster is caught in midair by Ernesto Gambano, who his own arms crossed, grabs the shoulders of the ringmaster, screaming, Hold it, Top Hat. I don't want you to think the great Gambanos have forgotten about you. We'll say goodbye in our own way. Ready, brother? Luigi screams, Ready, from off panel, and Ernesto uses ringmaster's momentum to flip him upside down, tossing the former, you can say it, ringleader at Luigi, who back flat on the floor, catches the ringmaster with his feet and gives him a tumble as the ringmaster screams for help that doesn't come. Then, finally, after the performers weary of their little game, Luigi drops the ringmaster on the floor and the clown throws the ringmaster's top hat at him. Calling him useless, the clown tells him to scram unless he wants an encore of their performance. And ringmaster, his ass caught out of his tailcoat, pushes up from the floor saying he's had enough. He thinks, but you haven't heard the last of me, smirking fools, and gets out of there. Python, standing in the doorframe, says the ringmaster's gone and asks if they're all agreed that the clown should be their new leader, and the decision is unanimous, making me wonder why she, having started the coup and clearly being a persuasive person, didn't put herself in the lead position. But this is 1965, and Python probably assumed nobody would respect her as the leader being a woman and that she'd be able to pull the strings from the consigliere position. Plus, the clown will always owe her for elevating his station in life. Remember when I said the August clown was number two? He's number one now, and he's feeling himself. He says, You've made a rival choice than you think. The clown prince of the circus of crime has arrived. A few days later, at Midtown High School, we get the goldenrod kid in his goldenrod vest, red tie, white shirt, SJB pants, as usual. He's in class, his left hand to his chin, reading a book, surrounded by students in their seats, smiling, talking, living. Behind him, we see Bowtie Charlie in an SJB blazer and pink tie. The bell just rung because Bowtie Charlie is excited. He screams, hot dog, and turns to face the sandy-haired kid behind him, telling him that they should go grab a soda. Meanwhile, Pete's not talking. He's learning. 
Hmm. Some of these new biochemical discoveries of Dr. Henry Pym are awfully interesting. I wonder if I should specialize in biochemistry or physics. Deciding on his future, inspired by the Ant-Man. But Liz Allen isn't having all this work, work, work business. The blonde bandit walks over, red long sleeve, sequin turtleneck and brown skirt, and shuts Pete's book for him, telling him the class ended minutes ago. Pete was lost in biochemistry. Probably another adventure of bone. Chemical bone. He thanks Liz, saying he didn't notice, and of course, Flash, fashion on, green with envy sweater, white button up beneath it, as usual, looks over his shoulder at the two, hating. Aw, oh, leave him alone, Liz. A kisser like his looks better with a book covering it anytime. Five opens to Liz helping Pete get his blazer on, while her friends Gray and Red tell her they'll meet her outside. Liz tells Pete he can't study all the time. She tells him he needs to relax and asks him to walk her home. Pete says he can't today and asks for a rain check, thinking that Betty Brand is already mad at him and if she saw him walking the blonde bandit home, he'd be finished in her league. And Pete loves the Betty Brent league of the girl Fridays. A few minutes later, he runs into Betty who's wearing a lime green blazer, dress, matching green heels and clutch, and a yellow frilly shirt. Her auburn bob, flawless. Forest Hills, Queens must be like five minutes away from Midtown in the 616 universe. Either that or Betty lives right down the block from Pete. Either way, she says she was hoping to run into Pete and Pete is excited to see Betty. He always is and he says so. Betty says, but what about you making a play for Johnny Storm's girlfriend? This was, of course, in last issue, ASM number 21, Where Flies the Beetle, or The Triangle Tangos, here on Me and My Friend Pete. Pete says he'd like a chance to explain and jumps right into it. I hardly know her. She doesn't mean anything to me, nor I to her. She was just trying to make Johnny jealous. And that's true. Betty, her head lowered, says Peter must think she's a foolish, jealous female. And Pete's like, nah. In a beautiful headshot of Betty, her eyes are dazzling blue. Pete says from off panel, Maybe you are, Bet, but you're also the prettiest, nicest, most wonderful gal I know. That was, you can say it, a backhanded compliment. He wasn't smooth with it. He keeps giving Betty reasons to have these ideas, so he could have left out that whole first sentence. Betty ignored the first sentence anyway, telling Pete she won't pretend she doesn't love him saying all these sweet things. They take each other's hands in the next panel. Pete says now that they've made peace, what does Betty say to dinner with Pete? Tonight, Betty says she'd love to, but she has plans. The miserable magnate, J. Jonah Jameson, is sponsoring an art exhibit, and she has to be there to take notes, but tells Pete she insists that he comes. And so, a short time later at a plush Madison Avenue art gallery, we get J. Jonah Jameson hobnobbing in a light brown suit, green tie, talking to a white-haired woman in a fancy Sunday hat that's almost as tall as she is, shade red, in a red jacket, and dressed to match with pearl earrings. The woman's name is Mrs. Vander Twilliger, and JJ's saying his exhibit is one of the finest collections on the Eastern Seaboard. That he selected all the pieces himself, and they're virtually priceless. I just want to say, art is subjective, so I try not to knock art that I don't find appealing to me. But the painting we have on the wall is one part absurd, one part Steve Ditko working. It is a white person's right foot in a sky blue sock with a hole where the big toe is. I think it's magnificent, but if this is what passes as art in the 616 universe, I'm not a fan of the 616 universe's art scene. But what do I know? Our universe has soup cans for art, and I like them a lot. But this is stunting, because in the world of comic books, it's a well-known joke that a lot of artists can't draw feet or horses. We haven't got a horse yet from the GOAT Steve Ditko, but the man can clearly draw feet. A person we can't see behind a marble pillar thinks, Boy, I wish I could draw feet like that. A little gauntlet toss for the artist through the ages. I love it so much, you know it's the panel of the week. And you can find it on the High Society Patreon page. Back to Mrs. Vander Twilliger is wholly impressed. She says, You dear man, to be so successful and have such taste in art too. How I admire you. Jameson, fixing his tie smartly, says he hates to brag and gripping the lapels of his blazer does exactly that. I believe it's my civic duty to bring art appreciation to the masses. I love nothing better than helping my fellow man. While thinking that it's a bonus that he can make a profit from it as well. Pete and Betty arrive on scene and Pete, hands in pocket, takes one look around, spots a portrait of a bandit's finger on the wall, and immediately knows he's in a circle jerk. He says, if this snuff is art, I'm glad I'm a science major. The clapback king of queens. 
wholly unimpressed. Meanwhile, just outside the crowded gallery, we find... The Circus of Crime is standing at the back door of the gallery as Luigi, or is that Ernesto, says it's time to see if the clown is going to be a better leader than the ringmaster. The clown's not worried. This is his time to shine. He tells his gang they'll be fine if they follow his plan to the letter, starting with... The Gambanos follow the clown's instruction, lifting Cannonball in the next panel, who is laying flat as a board. The clown says there's so much talking in the gallery, no one will hear them. The Gambanos count one, they count two, and on three, they ram Cannonball's head into the back door of the building, shattering the lock. Python screams, perfect, and the clown prince of the circus of crime is ready for his spotlight. He says he's going to distract the people, his gang just needs to loot the place. And juggling while on his unicycle, hand-eye coordination on best ever, he bikes into the gallery, shouting, Presenting an extraordinary episode of jazzy juggling and breathtaking balance for the courtesy of Mr. J. Jonah Jameson. Of course, the miserable magnate, watching in shock, thinks, hey, I'll save a buck if I can. I never hired him, but if I'll get the credit for it, that's okay with me. Meanwhile, in the section of gallery roped off from the exhibition guests, Luigi, Cannonball, and Princess Python are getting busy pulling paintings from the walls and tossing them to Ernesto, who has a decent stack in his hands and the upper body strength to carry them. He says he knew the clown would be a great new leader, and Python's like, I told you he would be, back in the gallery that's on limits. Pete's standing next to Betty and a couple of people who are absorbing the beauty of that ripped big toe sock, I'm sure. While everyone's enjoying themselves, Pete knows that the clown putting on this show is a member of the Ringmaster's gang and that trouble must be brewing. He turns his head slightly to follow the sound of Jameson's voice, who is heading off panel, stage left. What's that noise from the back room? Who's inside there? But the clown proves to be the right man for the job. He lets JJ pass, then shoots in front of the crowd, stopping them from following Jameson to the back with a skid so sharp, he has to grab Betty and pull her back so she's not knocked over by the wheel. The clown screams, Stay back, folks. Think how embarrassing it would be to get run over by a unicycle. But now, Pete knows there's something going on, and in this room full of people, he has no chance to turn into Spider-Man. Seven opens to Big Brass Jameson walking in on his portraits being robbed. Grabbing Cannonball by the shoulder, he tells the silver-headed circus crony to let go of the paintings. And Cannonball takes one look at Jameson, sizes him up, and says he kind of hates to refuse the miserable magnate, especially since JJ acts so nice and polite, before conking him in a steel-covered headbutt. That's the sound effect we get here written in bright red above JJ's head. Conk! Cannonball's got a sinister smile on his lips as JJ's crow's feet stretch out around his eyes, shut tight in pain, and his hand falls from the villain's shoulder. He slumps down the wall and falls into a seated position. His legs out in front of him, his chin on his chest, the miserable magnate is out cold in a pitiful state where he's found minutes later as Pete and Betty spot him and race towards him from the background, stage left. In the foreground, stage left, making literal tracks on his battle unicycle, is the clown. His plan worked to perfection. His gang got out of there before anyone could stop them, and now he's going to Autobot 2. Translation? Roll out. Betty and Pete drop down to help Jameson. Betty, wrapping JJ in her arms, tells the Goldenrod kid, Oh, Peter, he's unconscious, and he he's just barely breathing. He's hurt very badly. We need a doctor. Pete looks over his shoulder at two approaching police officers, Joe and Tomas, of course. Pete thinks it's a good thing they're here, but he wishes he could get suited and booted because the only person who hassles JJ is the king of swing from Forest Hills, Queens, and miserable or not, nobody puts hands on JJ. Webbing, maybe, but not hands. Tomas asks Pete what he knows about what happened here as Joe works the crowd for statements. Then, as a police ambulance speeds the still unconscious Jonah Jameson to the hospital, you tore in the clear. You can go now. We'll do everything we can for your boss, Miss Brant. From off panel, as Pete tries to console a crying Betty Brant. She says he had his faults, but he wasn't so bad, and that she's going to pray Jameson is all right. Pete, his own eyes low in sadness, tells Betty he's going to take her home now. Neither of them know the sleazy dealings JJ was a part of two issues ago when he created the Scorpion, so going off of that context, it's understandable that they're destroyed. If karma is real, I'm not one to believe in it, but if it is, JJ's karma is squared right now. Ten seconds after Pete drops Betty off at her house, he's suited and booted, getting spidery, scaling the sheer wall of a building, screaming, and last, I'm free to go into action as Spider-Man, and the one I want to find is the Ringmaster. 
I feel bad for the ringmaster. Spidey is pissed and we get a caption box reminding us that Spidey doesn't know that the ringmaster's been tossed from his circus group. In the final panel, he holds his spider tracer tracker. It's just a small rectangle in his right hand with a little antenna extending from its right side. Nothing fancy in appearance, but top-notch scientific design. Spidey's staring down at it in profile as it begins vibrating in his hands. He says it's going to lead him right to the clown and his little pals. We turn the page and we're on... The Infinity, the Infinity, Infinity, Infinity page. page! Page 8. Just in time to witness Spidey, the tracker wrapped around his neck, web swinging high above the building, screaming that he's getting closer to the ringmaster. But as Spidey gets closer to the ringmaster, he wonders why the man will be hanging out in this posh neighborhood. Falling towards the sheer wall of a gray stone building, Spidey screams. Wow, it's throbbing and buzzing and shaking to beat the band now. I must be almost on top of him. Shaking to beat the band, he said. The idiom king of swing from Forest Hills, Queens. Another one under his belt. Spidey grips the wall and we see he's across from and above a police department with old school light orbs going yellow softly. Spidey's lamenting the fact that he wasn't able to capture the ringmaster before the police did. Inside the police station, however, the desk sergeant is talking to the ringmaster's back. The tail-coated trancer had an alibi and has to be released. The desk sergeant says he still thinks the ringmaster has something to do with the robbery earlier. The ringmaster, flourishing his top hat and heading towards the door, antagonizes the desk sergeant before he gets out of there. If I were, I wouldn't have waited for you to pick me up. I told you, I'm through with crime. Spidey, still perched on the wall, watches him exit the station confused, thinking, I don't get it! He's walking out! Free as a bird! Why didn't they hold him? But Spidey isn't giving the ringmaster the benefit of the doubt. Spitting a web line with his left hand, he hops off the wall onto a nearby ledge and decides to follow the former kingpin of the circus of crime. The ringmaster is back in his hotel room, pacing and monologuing something fierce, unaware of our hero just outside of his window. Those crummy rat finks? I got them all together. I taught them all they know. And now they're operating without me? I've got a good mind to tell the cops where to find them. Rubbing his chin, his jet black hair matted down from hat hair, he comes up with a master plan. He's going to steal the art from his former team and then rat on them. He says this will be poetic justice. Poetic justice. If I told you that a flower bloomed in a dark room, would you trust it? Spidey, lifting the window of the motel room silently, thinks this makes things more complicated for him. He sneaks into the motel quietly and we get a great detailed panel of Spidey lifting the ringmaster's top hat with the tips of his fingers. Who needs a prehensile thumb with Spidey fingers? Spidey's got to find out where the others are, and he's got the perfect plan to do that little thing. He shoots a silent web line onto the top of the hat and attaches it to the ceiling before making his presence known. Say, Ringmaster, do your friends ever call you Ringo for short? The Ringmaster spins around, wondering who just spoke, and stares straight into the Amadeus spiral of his own design. Spidey, his head upside down beside the hat, replies, One thing, sure, I'm not Tuesday well. Keep your eyes on your hat, son. Son him! And Susan Kerwell, better known as Tuesday Weld, is a former American actress whose career spans six decades in film and television, beginning with modeling as a child after her father's death. Her stunning good looks and roles dripping with sexuality have made her amusing pop culture to this day. In 1960, she won a Golden Globe Award for Most Promising Female Newcomer. She was nominated for another in 1972 for the film Played As It Lays an Academy Award for Best Supporting Actress in Looking for Mr. Goodbar in 1977, an Emmy Award for The Winter of Our Discontent in 1983, and a BAFTA Award for one of my personal favorite films of all time, Once Upon a Time in America in 1984. Walt was almost as famous for the role she turned down as the one she took, passing up on films such as Bonnie and Clyde, Rosemary's Baby, True Grit, and Bob and Carol and Ted and Alice. But these were conscious decisions by Weld, who turned the films down because she knew they'd be successful, choosing roles she preferred to play instead of guaranteed smash hits. I imagine being the breadwinner for your family from the age of 12 makes a person much more inclined to choose what they would like to do inside of what they have to do. Does that make sense? Either way, one time for the captivating Mrs. Tuesday Weld, she is certainly what Spidey is not. Back to... Spidey activates the hypnotizing power of the ringmaster's hat and gets right to business. With the ringmaster frozen in place, Spidey says, Now, sleepyhead, suppose you tell me where the clown's hideout is. The ringmaster in trance replies that his old gang is probably using his old hideout, a warehouse where he held their old circus equipment on West 22nd Street. Spidey's going to Chelsea Market. He leaps down from his web line asking the motionless ringmaster if he can use the man's phone, but of course, the ringmaster doesn't reply. Spidey picks up the phone and dials Municipal Hospital where JJ is being cared for to open page 10 
and ask about Jameson's condition. The receptionist rings JJ's floor, and we get a panel of JJ's head in the foreground, on a pillow stage right, a doctor beside him, while in the background, Betty Brant holds a receiver pressed to her ear. Hello? This is Betty Brant. No, Mr. Jameson is still unconscious. They're taking him to x-ray now. She hangs up thinking that the voice on the other side of the line sounded muffled like it was wearing a mask, and I'm sure she suspects Spidey is on the move. And she's right! Spidey, thinking there's nothing he can do for Jameson right now, goes into busy man mode in honor of the miserable magnate. Spraying a web line from his right hand, he leaps through the motel window thinking he's going after the clown and his cronies because he doesn't want to sit around. In a goldenrod negative space, he swings forward on a web line screaming because I'm one little web sprinter who likes to keep busy. Busy man, Spidey, and if he's on your trail, you can believe he's about to be way past busy enough and not very far away. The circus of crime are in their storage warehouse chilling. Luigi, or is that Ernesto, is upside down in a seated position, his legs out in front of him, his hands gripping a pair of steady rings. Those are the gymnast rings that hang from the ceiling stage left. Ernesto, or is that Luigi, is gripping his own pair, but both of his feet are on the ground beside his brother. Princess Python is to their right, the clown to hers, sitting on an elephant step with a star on it. And the cannonball, rounding out the group, is stage right, bracing on a stack of wooden crates. All around them we have circus equipment, Cages on wheels, chest, giant rubber balls, the works. Cannonball is giving props where they're due, telling the clown that they pulled the heist off as clean as a whistle. Clown says it's only the beginning, but now they need a name. Princess Python's confused. She says they already have names. And the Gambanos chime in saying, no, nah, they need a name for the whole team, like the Avengers, and that they're sure they can come up with a better name for themselves than that quote, cornball moniker. Call Earth's Mightiest Heroes Cornballs. In the next panel, the clown, a hand to his chin, says, There should be a name of drama in it. One which will strike fear into the hearts of those who hear it. One which no one can ever forget. Luigi, or Ernesto, upside down in an Irish cross, that's some top-notch agility and strength for a man with no superpowers, suggests the carnival champs. Ernesto, or Luigi, says the big toppers. And we can see these guys' whole thought process is underlined by circus gimmicks. But the real brains behind this outfit, Princess Python, puts a scale-covered leg up on the elephant step and leaning forward towards the clown, says she's got it. From off-panel in the final panel, she screams, The Masters of Menace! The Gambano on a ring flips right side up, saying that's great. But before he can elaborate, the sign of the spider blankets the far wall of the warehouse and his words scurry back down his throat. Wasting time stating the obvious, the clown screams, It's Spider-Man! As Spidey drops down from the roof, gripping a web line in each hand. So Princess Python takes charge. She tells the Masters of Menace to destroy the webhead. Spidey screams, Boing! Didn't any of you ever hear of the good neighbor policy? The good neighbor policy was the diplomatic policy of the United States presented by Franklin Delano Roosevelt, President of the United States from 1933 to 1945. According to history.state.gov, the policy emphasized cooperation and trade rather than military force to maintain stability in the Western Hemisphere between the United States and Latin America. So Spidey, even if they've heard of it, I'm sure they're not applying it to you. Proven by Luigi, or Ernesto, shouting to Cannonball to smash the webhead as all three men race forward. Cannonball, a much bigger tough guy now that he's attacked a 55-year-old man, sprints out in front of the twins shouting that when he smashes someone, there isn't any rest. Ernesto, or is that Luigi, shouts that Spidey can't take all of them, and we got action. Spidey, still clutching his web lines, leaps over a living huh. cannonball, dodging a Gambano's outstretched arms, shouting, Masters of Menace, ain't you want to call yourselves the Union of Useless? But Spidey's spoken too soon, because a second later, he's struck in the right shoulder from behind by a circus ball. A circus ball, or walking globe, weighs on average 25 pounds. Not a lot in comparison to what the webhead can lift or take, but still enough to catch him off guard, forcing him to release his web lines. Spidey says that was an unfriendly thing to do. And spinning in the air, he grabs Cannonball by the head and leapfrogs him ha! easily, dodging a straight left thrown by the silver-domed villain. Shaking an angry left fist at the Gumbano who threw the circus ball at him, Spidey says if you do that again, you'll make me angry and you'll really be in trouble. But the distraction pays off. The clown on his battle cycle swerves into the action, carrying his shepherd's hook. Snagging Spidey out of the air with the hook by the ankles, the clown screams. And now, Spider-Man, your brief moment of glory is over. Your flamboyant acrobatics do not impress me. Spidey thinks he forgot about the clown, and that's understandable. In their last scrap at the circus, the clown did literally nothing during the fight except be landed on by other members of the gang. So Spidey probably didn't think the bozo had a hands team. And on 12, the Masters of Menace get busy. 
the clown screams for his team to keep the web head off balance, and they intend to do just that little thing. Luigi, or is that Ernesto, his legs hooked into steady rings, swoops in, cracking Spidey in the ribcage, stopping the webhead who's trying to backflip away from getting his bearings. He grabs the webhead and in perfect sync with Ernesto, tosses our hero towards his twin as the clown shouts not to be overconfident because as long as the webhead's inhaling, exhaling, he's dangerous. Ernesto, now on his own rings, grabs the webhead by the ankles as Spidey screams, thanks for the testimonial, boys. I'm trying to prove that you're right. His agility on best ever, he uses his momentum to flip right side up, oh. still being held by his left ankle. Grabbing Ernesto, or is that Luigi, by the back of the neck, he forces the man's head down and turnabout is fair play. As he grabs Ernesto's left leg and using the aerial acrobat's own ring against him, puts the man in a modified Boston Crab, hereafter known as a Queen Spider. Gambano shouts that nobody can twist himself through the air like that. And of course, Spidey doesn't agree. Correction, Gambano. Spider-Man can. Yeah, Why is Spidey screaming? Because he's been snagged by the clown's Bo Peep cane again. The clown is still on that unicycle. Why won't he get off that unicycle? Is he only this accurate swinging the cane on one wheel? So many questions. Either way, he shouts, Ha! I got him again! Cannonball! Quick! Now! And Cannonball seizes his moment. Rushing forward with both fists raised, he slams his cone head square into Spider-Man's chest in the final panel with a loud boom. The clown hooks Spidey again to open 13, this time beneath the armpit, but Spidey slips the hook easily, at the same time avoiding a left hook thrown by Cannonball, pushing the menace to the floor. Cannonball hasn't landed one hit with his fist, he can only connect with his head. Meanwhile, the clown screams that Spidey's too strong for him to hold. Spidey, planting off of the human Cannonball, replies, as for you, Cannonball, I just crossed you off my list of the people I like to be stranded on a desert island with. In the next panel, Spidey gets, you can say it, amazing. He hits the floor, huh. bounces up through ha. the crook of the clown's cane, dodges oh. the left-handed swing of a Gambano soaring above him, and another huh. from Cannonball swinging from below. The clown says Spidey can't outmaneuver them forever, and Spidey, landing on a handstand before huh. pounding over a crate, replies, Don't bet on it, funny face. We get a great panel of Spidey's left knee and right foot as the battle rages. That's a beautifully drawn knee. And as our hero does his work, Princess Python is huddled behind him, hidden partially by an iron box, her right hand to her bosom. She thinks, he's forgotten about Princess Python. This is my chance to show what I can do. Before lunging forward face first and grabbing Spidey around both arms. Any other villain leaving their faces open like this would have found their chins facing north, but she's not your run of the mill villain. Staring into Spidey's buggy eyes, she screams that she's going to give Spidey the biggest favor of his life. The favor? I'll give you a chance to surrender before they destroy you. And Spidey tells her to let go, that he's not in the mood for surrendering as someone shouts for her to hold him from off panel. Spidey, frozen with indecision, thinks, Suffering spider webs. What do I do now? I can't fight a female. I can't use force against her. But if she doesn't let go, the other will pulverize me. In the final panel from off panel, the clown shouts that they've got the Spider-Man surrounded and asks her to kindly step aside. Always make time for the niceties. Python, looking over her shoulder to ensure that Spidey's surrounded, is good with what she sees, and she replies, All right, clown, but be gentle with him. He's rather cute in an offbeat way. Spidey's unknown power, the Kavorka. Trapped between a wheeled caravan and a python, he thinks... Why does a woman in my life always cause nothing but trouble? You've caused all the trouble in your relationship with Betty Brant except for her beef with Blackie Gaxton and the big man. What are you talking about? Liz Allen? Okay, Liz Allen called this trouble, I'll admit it. But Aunt May doesn't. And that's probably all of the women in your life, Pete. Meanwhile, back at the ringmaster's apartment, the slightly swaying hypnotic hat continues to hold him in its spell. And the ringmaster stands motionless in front of his purple top hat. But Spidey's webbing has a time limit and it runs out in the next panel, causing the top hat to fall to the floor with a soft thunk. And I imagine it twirls on its brim like a quarter on a countertop before coming to a stop. And so, slowly, sinisterly, the gleam of intelligence begins to return to the cold, malevolent eyes of the ringmaster. I can't get over the ringmaster's greasy hat hair. He must never take that hat off. It must stink something terrible. To high heaven, as they say. While in a quiet hospital room, Betty Brant patiently keeps her lonely vigil. Betty is sitting at Jameson's bedside, who's sleeping peacefully. I love the way both of them are drawn here. Jameson's face is towards us, his head facing stage left. Almost makes me feel bad for the guy. While Betty sits with her hands folded on her lap, 
She's thinking the x-ray should be back at any moment. And of course, cosmic timing makes the moment the very next panel. A white doctor in white scrubs with the Carl Winslow working around his head says Jameson's lucky that there are no internal injuries and Jameson should be waking up soon. And Betty thanks the heavens. We get a gorgeous snapshot of her face in a hot pink negative space. The bangs of her bob so sharp I'm sure they could draw blood. And she may just want to in a moment. Scowling slightly, she's thinking Pete's going to be glad to hear it before realizing she hasn't seen the Goldenrod Kid all day. And the Goldenrod Kid, <clears throat> the Golden Liability, is tied up at the moment. Almost literally. We shift back to West 22nd Street warehouse scene just in time to find Spidey off balance on his left foot being mobbed by the Masters of Menace. Every member except Princess Python is piling on him, raining down blows. Princess Python, in the foreground, stage right, is driving her team. She screams, if you all can't stop him now, you might as well give up. The clown tells her not to worry, that they've got the webhead exactly where they want him. But I don't believe that. You probably don't either, and Spidey surely doesn't. In a final panel, with blows still falling on him, pressed on all sides, a rugged seawall, Spidey plants his feet, screaming, you've got that backwards, boys. You all got me exactly where I want you. Just watch. You think these guys will be smart enough to know when to hop off of the golden liability and head for the hills. But nope, just the opposite. Cannonball screams that Spidey's bluffing. Is he? Of course not. 15 opens to Spidey being vocally offended beneath the standing dog pile that the cannonball would call him a liar right before he swings a hammer fist upward, sending Luigi, or is that Ernesto, flying stage right. Spidey continues his monologue. And so, it behooves me to prove that I wasn't bluffing. And I'm afraid I'll have to do it the hard way. In a backhanded fist later, the clown is airborne. With room to maneuver now, Spidey ducks beneath a right cross thrown by the human cannonball. Ha! And Ernesto, or is that- It doesn't matter what your name is! Joins the clown off his feet stage left. All three quickly with their chins facing north. Spidey, the whole time shouting for the masses of menace not to crowd because you know rule number three in the golden liability playbook. What's the- First come, first served. And Princess Python isn't waiting for this to go further south. She books it stage left, past the gypsy caravan, thinking things are just as she feared. Her goons can't hold the Spider-Man. As she sprints, she wonders how someone so normal-sized, that's 5'10", that's 170 pounds, can be so powerful and so dangerous. That's a good question. The answer? The kid's got grit and he always commits and he was bit by a radioactive spider. And speaking of the kid, Spidey, flexing with his fist in front of his thighs, advances on the silver dome master of menace with menace of his own in every word. I saved you from last, Cannonball. You're the big, brave hero who knocked out middle-aged Jonah Jameson. Cannonball, his back and fingers pressed against a conveniently placed wall, is dressed. He screams, huh, how do you know? Spidey replies, that nutty helmet you wear left rivet marks on his skin. Before Cannonball, like a cornered rat, makes his move. Gathering his courage, he rushes at Spidey, head down in a full sprint. And Spider-Man puts his left hand out, stopping Cannonball's rush, no problem, saying he hoped the man would try just this little thing. Holding Cannonball beneath his chin with his right hand, Spidey slams a hammer fist into Cannonball's cone-headed silver dome with his left, crushing the metal over Cannonball's eyes. Spidey says that Jameson isn't one of his favorite buddy boys, but at least he's good for a few laughs before clocking Cannonball with a left cross and the man is going flying. In the final panel, in a goldenrod space, Spidey looks over his shoulder, wondering what happened to Princess Python. He walks towards a doorway in the background to open page 16, while in the foreground, the clown comes to consciousness. He plays possum, however, his eyes watching Spidey exit beneath his high, arcing brows. And Spidey, he's caught up to Princess Python, who has run into a side room and seems to be waiting for him. Spidey enters the room and gets right to business. All right, ma'am, you better come with me now, as Python thinks she has to take advantage of being a female. She feigns outrage, screaming, how dare you come in here? Spidey says, hey, I'm taking everyone to jail now, and you'll be lonely without them, so I'm taking you too. Quipping, but he's thinking, what am I gonna do? I can't punch her in the jaw and drag her out. Princess Python, the brains of the Masters of Menace, knows her rights. Turning her back on Spider-Man, she tells him he's no officer. He doesn't have the authority to arrest her. Spidey's like, that's a good point, but you're wasting time. You know I can't let you go free. Princess Python says she doesn't know anything like that. 
She cozies up to Spidey, rubbing her back on his chest and her own right hand on her bosom. You know, Spider-Man, you're not too hard to take. Why don't you and I team up? We can make beautiful music together. But Spidey's immune to her charm, telling her that he happens to be tone deaf. But Princess Python presses, raising a perfectly manicured left hand. She caresses Spidey's masked cheek. She tells him not to be a fool, that this is the chance of a lifetime. They'll turn the other masters in and keep the loot for themselves. But Spidey can't be bought. You know, lady, I think the thing I like best about you is your untarnished cone of honor. Python tells Spidey to think of all the money they'll be dividing. We see that the clown has been watching this entire scene unfold. Thinking that Python's two-timing and no good, he makes a break for the exit. Meanwhile, the ringmaster finally snaps out of his trance in the hotel room. He says he feels like he's been sleeping, but he must have been daydreaming while wondering why his hat is on the floor. At least two hours have passed, and the man thinks he was just standing there daydreaming. Talk about dense. He snatches his hat off of the floor and monologuing as usual, says he's got to reach the clown and his gang fast before they skip town with the heist loot. He books it out of the motel room on page 17, racing down the block stage right towards West 22nd Street, still thinking about revenge. But in the foreground, we have an auburn hair white guy, orange hat, pink tie, and brown tweed jacket with a newspaper in his grip. He's thinking, hmm, looks like the ringmaster's in a mighty big hurry. I'll just tag along behind him. Like the chief told me to. Plain clothes Joe tailing the ringmaster. Meanwhile, back at the warehouse, Princess Python is still trying to seduce Spider-Man. She tells him to tell the truth, asking if he doesn't find her even a little attractive. Spidey, he's got grander taste. He replies, Lady, if you were Sophia Loren, which you're definitely not, I still wouldn't trust you from here to there. Pointing across the room, Sofia Costanza Brigida Villani Sicoloni, Dame Grand Cross of the Order of Merit of the Italian Republic, much better known as Sofia Loren, is an Italian actress, author, and singer named by the American Film Institute as one of the greatest female stars of classical Hollywood cinema and one of the premier sex symbols of the era with a career spanning 60 years. But Sofia Loren is more than just a stunning beauty. In 1961, she won the Academy Award for Best Actress for her role in the movie Two Women, the first actor of any gender to win an Oscar for a non-English language performance. She holds the record with seven awards for Best Actress from the Academia del Cinema Italiano, known as the David D. Donatello Awards, five Golden Globe Awards, a BAFTA Award, a Laurel Award, a Grammy, the Volpe Cup at the Venice Film Festival, a Best Actress Award at the Cannes Film Festival, and in 1991, a Lifetime Achievement Award from the Academy. And believe me when I tell you, I cut the list short. If you want to see her acting chops on full display, I recommend Yesterday, Today, and Tomorrow, the film. Back to. So Sophia Loren, the princess, is not, and Spidey doesn't trust her. He's proven right for not doing so in the very next panel. As Princess Python tries to pull his mask from his face, screaming that if she can get it off, he'll have to do whatever she says. Spidey shouts no, of course, and... Spurred on by desperation, Spidey moves with blinding speed, remasking his face before Princess Python can see who he really is. Pulling his mask back down, he tells Python she won't get another chance to do that. The princess, pulling a cattle prod from who knows where, says don't count on it. She shouts, you had your chance. Now you'll be sorry you didn't take it. This electric prod can control my all-powerful pet. It will certainly tame you. And we're in a great first-person perspective. Ditko working. As Spidey, we have our hands up as she pokes the cattle prod in our direction. Spidey asks the right question. Pen? What pen? The princess asks how Spidey thinks she got her name, jabbing the electric rod at our hero who backs away towards a sky blue door. Both hands raised, Spidey begs Python to take it easy because he doesn't want to get rough with a female. He tries to get spidery in the next panel because if fists can't work, there's always the shooters. But Princess Python is surgical with that cattle prod, and in one swift motion, she shocked both of Spidey's wrists, shorting out his web shooters. Momentarily unsure of his next move, the amazing teenager is suddenly prodded back through a small doorway into a murky, windowless room. As Spidey falls, Python screams, Say, I've won! My pet will finish you now! Farewell, Spider-Man! She peeks her head into the room to open page 18, shouting to her slithering one, as she calls it, that Spidey is all his. And the slithering one, filling every inch of the floor of the dark room, is a green-skinned, yellow-bellied python. Its body is wide as Spidey's torso, and at least 
40 feet long, curled in around itself. Spidey says it's the longest python he's ever seen as the giant snake strikes. Python or not, Spidey's still the best ever on the agility front, and grabbing the python around the head, he forces its maw to the floor, leaping up with his knees bent huh. tightly at his chest. The python's body loops around Spidey, who now, one hand holding the snake's thick body, the other still forcing his head towards the floor, fights to keep from being crushed, screaming that he has to come up with a battle plan. The tail of the gigantic beast in Spidey's right hand, the head in his left, Spidey goes silver age catch freezing. It's now or never. I've managed to get his head in one hand and the tip of his tail in the other. Now all I need is split second timing and an extra portion of plain ordinary luck. And for ha! once, Spidey ha! gets a little luck as the python struggle increases. Spidey, using that infamous spider strength, ties the snake into knots. And that snake's lucky. Any other hero would have probably wound up as shoes with a matching purse. But Spidey's got a cold, and if he can't punch a thing unconscious, he'll just tie it up in knots. So he does, screaming that this must be the first time a spider's tied a python up like this. He goes on to say that the giant snake would make a dandy paperweight. And on his feet now, he breaks towards the door and Princess Python. And this may be the first and only poor decision Princess Python has made all issue. Instead of taking this diversion to collect the paintings and get out of there as a means to escape, she's been watching Spidey the whole time and now starts booking it towards the exit, thinking nothing can stop their Spider-Man. And she's right, as Spidey leaps from the pit, screaming. Hold on there, princess. We have a little unfinished business to attend to. The colors and the detail of the snake on this page are beautiful to look at. Ditko is working. 19 opens to the clown, reminding us all that there's no honor amongst thieves. He's just around the corner, artwork tucked under his right arm, and he's thinking that he's going to get the painting stashed, then come back to get his revenge. He thinks he hears a rustling sound behind him, but doesn't turn. And he should've, because the ringmaster springs from the shadows on the next panel, and with a perfectly formed left cross, decks the clown in the back of the head, slumping him with a Sunday punch. That little lunch. Grabbing up the paintings himself, he breaks for the exit, and if it's the ringmaster, you know he's monologuing, giving the game away. Ha! So I went after all. Once I collect the money from these masterpieces, I'll be able to hire as many underlings as I please to form a new circus of crime. Who needs the masters of menace anyways? But exactly one second later. Outside of the warehouse, the ringmaster runs smack dab into plainclothes Joe and Mike and Ike with weapons drawn. Joe says, Didn't expect me to follow you, did you, ringmaster? All right, boys. Release him of those paintings and hold them as evidence. As the ringmaster has a breakdown, screaming that he can't fail again. But Ike says, who says you can't? And that's neither bad luck or bad karma. The ringmaster could have just went back to his old hustle, found a new circus, got back to business. Instead, he wanted revenge. This is where revenge gets you. Now you're going to be charged with the theft of these paintings and you didn't even steal them. Let things go and move on. That's the lesson there for the ringmaster. Meanwhile, Spidey is racing beside Princess Python, unsure of how to stop her without his shooters and without physically assaulting her, when one of the officers shouts, what's that racket there, from off panel. Cops in front of her, Spidey behind, Princess Python is caught between a rock and a quipping place, as Spidey says, you're lucky, all the girls are sitting home tonight with nothing to do. The queen pin of the Masters of Menace is snatched up by Joe in between panels, as Spidey leaps towards the rafters of the warehouse, huh. thinking he'll leave her to the law. Joe on the ground shouts, We've been looking for you, princess. Call a paddy wagon, boys. Spidey watching the Masters of Menace being marched out of the warehouse towards a paddy wagon Slow from an alley in the next Slow panel, down. pulls out his belt camera and begins snapping photos, thinking the pics would be the best medicine for old JJJ. If that man only knew that Spidey cares about him, he'd probably die from the shame. And so, a short time later, JJ has lived. We see him on his feet, his suit jacket on, adjusting his tie with a large square piece of gauze taped to the center of his forehead. And the first thing he tells Brady Brant when he's on his feet, I understand you were here at the hospital while I was ill, Miss Brant. Too lazy to go to work, eh? But Betty is all smiles. She thinks, he's as nasty as ever, so I know he's all right now. Just before the goldenrod kid enters the room in high spirits, saying hello to Jameson. Jameson just fronted like he was upset Betty stuck around, but we can see he appreciated her presence by the way he snaps at Pete for his absence to open page 20. Parker, and where were you when I was practically at death's door? Betty Scowling co-signs the question, asking Pete where he's been. Pete says, relax, JJ. I knew you'd be fine. You only hit your head. Betty does not like this at all. 
She puts her hands on her hips. She rounds on Peter. I think that remark was in very poor taste, Mr. Parker. While JJ turns his back to the Goldenrod kid saying they're going to miss him around the paper. JJ is going to fire Pete for not visiting him in the hospital. The miserable magnate's feelings are hurt. But Pete isn't worried. JJ threatens to fire him on average every six issues. Always forgetting that Pete is freelance. Pete leans comfortably against the wall of the hospital room with confidence in his eyes as he reaches into his blazer saying, No you're not JJ. Not after you've seen what I've got for you. He continues into the next panel, showing the miserable magnate five photos. Five card Petey in the building with a royal flush. He continues, of course, I can always sell these exclusive pics of the Masters of Menace to another newspaper. Jameson stares over his shoulder at the photos in shock, screaming that he wants to see them quick. In a second, the photos are in his hand, and he's drooling all over them and his demon photographer. Parker, you're a wizard. These shots are front page stuff. They show the capture of the entire gang. Hey, what's the matter? Pete smacks his face with his left hand, covering his eyes exasperated. He says things would have been perfect if the paintings weren't recovered, because now he'll have to look at them all over again. In the foreground, Betty has her hands to both cheeks, and she is cracking up. But JJ spent the majority of this comic unconscious, so you know the busy man back on his feet is getting back to what he knows, being way past busy enough. He grabs Pete under the left armpit, Betty by the right bicep, and drags them along the hospital hallway, screaming, Come on, what are we standing around for? We've got an extra to put out. Then, we've got to plan a new art exhibit right away, to cash in on the publicity. Betty asks, right away? Pete says, oh no. And they're off. Much, much later that night, Pete creeps through the front door of his Forest Hills home, hoping May is sleeping. He thinks he should have phoned to say he wasn't going to be home in time for dinner, but JJ didn't give him the chance. And of course, May isn't sleeping. Pete spots her as he closes the front door behind him, her hair in its perfect white ponytail. She's in a red robe, so fiery May tonight, and she's got her arms folded with an angry scowl on her face. Pete asks what May's still doing up, and of course she replies that she's waiting for him and tells him this is the first time he's ever come home late without calling. Pete, with an expression like, This is news to me, replies, Gee, I'm sorry Aunt May, but I can explain. You see, what happened was, that is, I mean, well, it's kind of hard to explain. But it doesn't seem that hard. JJ kept me late. You know we need the donuts. You know we can't do that on dimes. That's where I was. In the final panel, we're outside of the house, blanketed in the darkness, surrounded by other suburban homes and oak trees as a crescent moon hangs above the quiet community. Inside, May says she can't deny she's hurt because Peter has never kept secrets from her before. Pete thinks, Who boy, this is awful. Poor Aunt May thinks I'm keeping something bad from her. But think how much worse she was feeling when she knew that her pampered Peter Parker is really Spider-Man. And we close the story, as we often do in the Silver Age, with the caption box. Tell us the truth now. Admit it. Have you ever seen any other costumed superhero whose aunt had him on the carpet because he stayed out too late fighting sinister arch-villains? Of course not. But with old Spidey, this is just the beginning of all the surprises in store for you. So we want all you web spinners to be here next-ish. Until then, face front. And we're out. This was a great story, and I don't know if Stan and Steve intended it, but it does a good job of bringing Jameson back into our good graces after falling into villainous territory with his actions two issues ago. I really like Princess Python's character and wish Stan and Steve would have gone ahead and made her the leader of the outfit, as she was clearly the one making the decisions that led to their successes. As far as the clown, well, if you're a comic book reader, I suggest you pick up Moon Knight number seven of the current run also known as Legacy Issue number 207, to find out exactly what's going on with the clown these days. I was shocked. And of course, I love the shot at other artists with the artwork of the foot on the wall. Ditko throwing the gauntlet in the Silver Age down. You gotta love it. That's the main episode this week. And that's true. That's the main episode, but there is more Me and My Friend Pete available for your listening pleasure right now. If you support this show on Patreon.com slash HSPP, patrons get a bonus show every week where I run through comic books from all over the multiverse of comics, past and present, from Marvel to DC to all points in between. This week, we're running through Marvel's 1985, number one, a story that begins a tale that explores what happens when Marvel's greatest villains break the fourth wall in a quite literal sense and invade our world. 
We've got the Mole Man, we've got the Vulture, we've got the head of Voltron, and we've got my favorite villain of all time, Dr. Doom. In a quiet suburban home, nothing makes sense. If we've got comics, we've got history, and I'll be your guide through it all. Head over to patreon.com slash hspp and sign up to the Key Keeper or High Council tiers now to see what happens when our world is invaded by Marvel's villains. Next week on the main episode, we've got the return of the purple and green clad villain with the perpetual grin, the Green Goblin. And the last time he popped up, our sensational Spider-Man spiral. Will the outcome be different? Find out next time. This podcast is completely listener supported and your support keeps this crazy train on the tracks. I'm truly grateful you keep coming back and more grateful you allow me to be the conductor. Thank you so much for listening, and as always, a special thanks to the home team. That's the right minders, the big three, the key keepers, and the high council. Parker's 11. You got questions? Send them to me and my friend Pete at gmail.com, and I'll go digging for the answers. All that said, that's all that said. Please like, please comment, please share, please take care, and please think of the world and be true to yourself. And remember, with great power, you know the rest. Make sure you're being responsible. I'm out of here. <laughs>